Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. A lot of people think that real estate is a get-rich-quick scheme, and it is absolutely not. And especially now more than ever, you got to be extremely careful. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hey, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I am your host, Joe Cornwell. Today, your episode is brought to you by Presario Ventures, a private equity real estate firm based in the booming Austin, Texas market. To learn how you can invest in the future of Texas with Presario Ventures, visit info.presarioventures.com forward slash best ever or click the link in the show notes. Today, I am joined by J.D. Belcar. He is a Cincinnati-based investor. He's been on the show before. It's been almost two years since Jay has joined us on the show. And since then, he has scaled an additional 400 plus units in his portfolio as a GP and LP, as a personal owner and operator. Jay has a lot of experience and he's scaled in a very short window. That's why we asked him to join us today to talk about his journey, the things that have changed in the last two years, and all the lessons along the way. So Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about just big picture things that have changed in the last two years since you've been on the show. And of course, we will link to that show that Jay was on previously. So you guys can watch that if you didn't catch up on it already. So yeah, Jay, take it from there. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's great to be here again. So a few things have changed since the last time I was on the show, which was, I believe, in December 2021. Back then, I was still in my W-2 job. I'm focusing on real estate full time now. And I think you would agree that a lot changes based on your focus. So I was focusing on my job and I was focusing on the real estate portfolio. And then your focus is kind of divided. The growth is going to be a little bit slower. So now that I'm focusing on real estate full-time, as Tony Robbins says, where your focus goes, energy flows. I think I saw that happening. We added about 400 doors to our portfolio as a lead sponsor. So mostly these deals were done in a JV vehicle because most of the people that we work with are friends and family, people we know through our real estate circles. But we also did a couple syndication deals during this time. So it's mainly focused in the Cincinnati market, if you will which is where I live. So that's my backyard. And 
we feel a little more comfortable doing that because we understand the market. We have better relationships with brokers and property managers and lenders. And if there is a fire drill that happens at any of the properties, I'm around and I can take immediate action rather than relying on other people to be able to do that. And I feel that's important, especially when we are working with investor capital. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel like you and I are actually in the minority when it comes to multifamily investors who only invest locally. Obviously, a lot of investors will invest anywhere in the country or internationally if the deal's right. And from a philosophical standpoint, it does make it more difficult to have control of those assets if you're not local. And it becomes even more important if you're not local to have really strong management. And that can obviously be a challenge. We're both based in the Cincinnati market. I think probably one of the most common complaints I hear from investors is how many issues there are with some of the local management companies. So it's certainly easier if you can have a really hands-on approach that you are doing. So let's break down some of that journey the last two years. I know you said you added over 400 units, which is incredible. That's incredible growth, especially in the competitive market that we saw the last two years. So tell me a little bit about how you shifted from your previous portfolio into that rapid scale. That's a great question. So I think the last time when I was on the show, we had started to do some joint venture deals. So we had just started to use investor capital, if you will, because we had realized that to recycle our own capital, it's a slow process. It takes about 12 to 18 months to acquire an asset, to get it ready for renovations, complete the renovation, stabilize it, build that stable NOI for at least three to six months. So it's a long process. So my goal after I transitioned to real estate full-time was to buy more investment-worthy deals with other investors where we can actually do more using the investor capital. By that point, we had also built a little bit of a track record So we were able to attract some of that capital. So essentially, we closed in all of 2022 and so far in 2023, a total of about eight to nine deals. So those 400 doors are across about eight to nine deals, which will give you a sense that none of these deals are like massive two, 300 unit apartment complexes, because a lot of times what we are seeing is deals that size are most likely heavily marketed. And you're competing against institutional money and the numbers are just not making sense. So we usually target small to mid-sized multifamily properties where the opportunity for value add is much higher than just changing laminate countertops with granite or changing black appliances with stainless. So in my mind, that's more of a gravy. But if you know that you can get an asset that operationally you can add a ton of value to, but also physically in terms of the condition, something that's really dilapidated and you can redo everything, you can immediately add a ton of value in it. And at that point, you're not solely relying on the market's rent growth and job growth. You're actually physically adding so much value in it that no matter where the interest rates are, you can still come out okay if you have to exit from that deal a year or two down the road. So that was our main criteria. And like I said, about eight to nine assets in that 20 to 60 unit range. 
Okay, so let's talk about the movement on rents there. So I know you said you're going after deals that are heavier value add. That's the same exact strategy that, that I use as well. So these deals you picked up in the last few years, and again, I know they're all going to be a little different, but if you had to average them out over your portfolio, what were your average rents going in and what are your market rents on the back end after renovations? I think because majority of these deals were heavy value add deals, so for example, for one bedrooms, there's a huge inventory of one bedrooms in our market, especially older multifamily properties that exist. So we went from roughly about 450 to 495 in place rents to about 925 to 995 post renovation. So of course, these were pretty heavy renovations and they were not cheap anywhere between about 20 to 25 per door. So had to redo almost everything and including the holding costs, the numbers do add up. But then if you are spending about 20 to 25 a door to get 450 to $500 in rent bumps, the ROI is definitely there. Now, one of the assets that we bought, we had more of cosmetic renovations. So that's where we spent more like 10 to 12 per door in renovations. And then we are getting about 250 to 300 in rent bumps. So we are usually targeting anywhere between 25 and 35% ROI on the renovations that we do. So that's kind of our target. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. And those numbers sound incredible, especially on the ones where you're almost doubling your market rent from the renovation. Without having the numbers in front of me, I can picture them in my head and that's going to be a massive increase in valuation at the end of the day. So on those deals where you said you're doing these cosmetic renovations and you're targeting somewhere between... I guess the way I look at it automatically is a little different. So the old school of thought, at least for me and the philosophy I've used was where if you could get a 1% rent ratio return on your construction costs, usually it was worth the renovation. So that's my baseline. So for example, if I'm going to spend $10,000 on a small cosmetic renovation, I better have a bare minimum $100 increase in, in rent on that unit. Obviously, again, that's the absolute baseline. Anything less than that, it probably doesn't make sense to do. Now, in the current market we're in with 7 8% interest rates, that number becomes increasingly difficult because now the cost of financing, especially if you're doing construction draws, the return's not going to be there on something like a 1% rent ratio. So how has that changed in the last year or so with rates increasing? How has your strategy changed? That's another great question. And I ask this question to a lot of other real estate investors that I know. How are you guys changing your strategy? And I think, at least personally for us, the only thing that makes sense is adjust your underwriting and sales price and offer price based on the current lending terms, the cap rate adjustment, and also insurance pricing. Insurance pricing has been going up. There is a lot less appetite for certain things like aluminum wiring, cast iron plumbing, which was not the case. We would still find providers who would insure properties from early 60s, but there are more and more providers who are refusing coverage for properties that are of the 60s and 70s vintage. So that is definitely throwing a lot of hurdles. So the asking price versus the offer price, there's definitely a huge disconnect. I mean, we haven't closed a whole lot of deals in the last three to six months for that exact same reason. But I think the seller expectation is beginning to come down slowly because it's a completely different market. The interest rates have more than doubled, but the property values have not come down by a whole lot. They're just beginning to come down. But in my mind, 
unless you're actually adjusting the offer price based on some of these moving parts, there's just no way to make it work on a conservative fashion. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And again, you and I operate very similar spaces and most of the deals that are available, which there aren't many, so it's still a massive shortage of supply, which is you know, continue the elevated competition that we've seen the last few years. It makes the deals very difficult to pencil out, especially with the way seller expectations are today. I talked to a broker the other day and they were telling me that they're just now, like you mentioned, slowly, slowly seeing seller expectations adjust from the way they've been the last couple of years. So this is kind of a side note to that. I hear in these circles that we're in very often where you hear, oh, there's going to be this big influx of inventory. There's going to be this big crash in multifamily real estate. So what are your thoughts on that? Are you seeing what people are talking about? Are you anticipating the same things? So give me your take on that and then I'll give you mine. I hear about it all the time that there's going to be a ton of buying opportunities in the marketplace. But I think every market is different and there are certain markets that are extremely exposed to short-term floating interest bridge debt. I don't see a whole lot in our market, especially in the Midwest in general. And in Cincinnati specifically, there are few large groups that own a lot of them, large multifamily. And if we actually look at the debt that's on it, it's mostly agency debt and it's long-term. A lot of these properties were refied in 2020 through 2022 when interest rates dipped. So you don't see a lot of properties where the debt is coming due or there is an exposure to bridge debt. Now, if you're talking about other markets like Texas, Florida, Arizona, where there were just so many deals that syndicators did in the last three years, and they bought these properties on bridge debt, in many cases, they didn't have an option because it was not a stabilized property. Now, they are having trouble refining at current interest rates. So in those markets, I do think that there would be some opportunity to buy these larger deals. But in our market, I think there will be a little bit more motivation, but I'm not expecting a tsunami of deals and it's going to be like Black Friday shopping event in, in real estate in our market at least. Yeah, in my perspective, very similar. I hear this a lot, both in residential and commercial multifamily space and Everyone keeps saying there's going to be this big event and it's going to cause all this inventory and we're going to be back to 08, 09 pricing. And it's like, it's hard to imagine a scenario where that is a reality or a black swan type of event. And I guess that's the definition of a black swan is you can't anticipate it, kind of like COVID. But it's hard to imagine another scenario that would cause a market like that to shift so rapidly. And when I think of what type of environment does that put us in? Let's say that does happen. Well, are we going to be back to 08, 09, where the banks aren't lending? Maybe banks are going out of business. So even if that were the case, I think it also creates a dynamic in the market where just because there could be more supply, a massive influx of supply for some reason, then there creates other problems where it doesn't necessarily just make it an advantageous buyer's market. Or maybe we have a massive rent correction. So now values are dropping. And just because maybe a bank has to repo some of these doesn't mean they're going to be a good deal for a buyer if rents all of a sudden have a massive correction. So it's interesting to play what if game. And, and that's why I like to ask that question. But I agree with you in principle. I don't see any massive correction coming that's going to really change the dynamic of the market in the short term. Anyway. Agreed. I think what's happening today with high inflation, it's slowly beginning to get under control, but we are still in high threes. If we compare to what's happening today with early 70s, when 
the dollar was no longer backed by physical gold in Nixon era. When that happened, there was a lot of money that flooded the market at that time, which was kind of very similar to $3 trillion printed during COVID. And that certainly gave rise to a lot of investors. The value just went up. That effectively caused a lot of inflation. And then after that, there were fears of recession. So that happened in early 70s, like 70 through 75, if we look at history. And then we looked at the interest rates actually skyrocketed at that time. They went to almost 17, 18%. And that's basically what feds are doing now. And they didn't really come back down for quite some time. So when a lot of people say that in 2024 or 25, the interest rates might actually come back down, maybe 4 or 5%. I'm not quite sure if that will happen. So I'm not banking on it. But I do think that the price correction would have to happen. Otherwise, the transaction volume is just going to come to a screeching halt because why would investors buy if the properties don't cash flow? I mean, the whole point is to buy cash flowing assets. So I think that seller expectation has to change over time. But to your point, by no means do I think that we'll find a ton of properties at a very steep discount. It's just adjustment of prices based on what the market is doing. Yeah, it's interesting to think of what could change from a fundamental standpoint in our market, talking about the U.S. economy in general, that would allow for something to change. So maybe massive unemployment increasing, that number goes up significantly, that could obviously cause the Fed to then try to lower rates to help offset a recession caused by unemployment. That's one possibility. I think that there's just so many things that are unlikely to happen, though, would lead us down that path. And again, to your point, earlier this year, a lot of investors were talking about how we think that by the end of 23, there's going to be a big change or maybe early 24. And it's looking at the relatively, I don't want to call it stable, but the relatively linear progression we've had in the market, it doesn't seem like anything in the short term is going to cause a massive market shift. I've heard this and I agree it could be a possibility. Maybe commercial banking turns into longer amortized periods where if prices have to stay or if they do stay stabilized, well, then they're going to borrow money for longer terms, longer amortizations. I know that's been thrown around in the residential space as well, going to like a European model with a 40, 50 year amortization as a possibility for the unaffordability of residential property. But it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next year or two. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your actual strategy. And I know you, you covered it briefly. You said you invest locally. You're based in Cincinnati. Is your entire portfolio here in the greater Cincinnati area? Yes. All the deals that we are lead sponsors on or deals in my personal portfolio, they're all in the greater Cincinnati area. We have done some co-GP deals where we have helped raise capital for other good operators in our network. And those deals are not in our backyard. Those are in South Carolina, Alabama. So they are a little bit more spread out. But Again, we try to not co-GP and not raise capital for other people's deals because unless we are completely sure about that operator's track record and are personally invested in that deal, we don't feel comfortable doing that. So, which is why majority of our deals are done here locally in Cincinnati, where basically we have found the deals and we actively manage those deals. Okay. And... On your stuff that you're overseeing management, it sounds like you have third-party management in place for all of your Cincinnati-based and obviously state-based properties. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. So what is your strategy 
again, with the difficulties we mentioned in the beginning of the call, I know most markets face this. I hear that it's not a uncommon thing, but his Cincinnati, in my opinion, has historically faced challenges with good management companies. So what is your approach to making sure your assets are successful with third-party management? I think also in different parts of Cincinnati, we have different property managers that we work with. And primary reason for that is majority of the portfolio that they manage is in that part of town. So if you have someone who is mainly active in Northern Kentucky, and if you have an asset, let's say in Dayton, which is an hour and a half up north and have the same property manager manage, they are going to struggle because now they have people traveling. So you're basically paying for people just to be on the road. So that way we segregated the property managers based on the neighborhoods and the markets that we are in. But additionally, we are fairly hands-on given that these assets are local. I'm at these properties personally at least every two weeks or so. So I actually know what's happening at the property. So if landscaping was done and I show up and it's actually not done, I'm able to catch that pretty quick. Similarly, just the common area cleaning. And some of these things might sound trivial, but all of these things have an impact on how happy your tenants are. If the common areas are unclean, if the landscaping is not done correctly, the tenants begin to start noticing that the property is being ignored and then you start having vacancy issues. So it's just a tsunami of things that can hit you if you're not on top of these things. But having these assets locally, we are able to be on top of property management companies as much as possible as asset managers. So that's definitely been helpful, which is why we primarily invest in our backyard to be able to have that attention. So now having said that, you hear a lot of people say that live where you like and invest where numbers make sense. I don't disagree with that, but then you need to have a trusted boots on the ground partner in a new market if you want to invest remotely in a new market. Yeah, I want to touch more on that here in a second. But back to your point about physical appearance of a property, common areas, all those things that, like you said, I think many investors take for granted. And I admittedly took for granted early in my investing journey. It's so interesting to see the dynamic change when you come in as a new owner or manager of a property and want to change the culture, let's say, of an asset. And you clean up the ground, clean up all the cigarette butts and the beer cans. The, the last property I just purchased, this was very critical. So it's timely that you said that. It's interesting to see how quickly some of the tenants can adapt because fundamentally, I think tenants, even in D-class assets, want to live in a nice, safe, clean area. As humans, we all want that. So I'm going to actually relate this back for anyone who doesn't know. I'm former law enforcement and there's a theory they teach us in the academy called the broken window theory. And I don't know if you've ever heard that, something like that. Basically, it says that as law enforcement, if you allow broken windows in your town, it's going to invite further crime. It's going to invite further vagrancy because it sets the tone and the culture of that community that that's acceptable and that's okay. So it's interesting. That was the first thing that popped in my mind when you said that, that when you change the culture of an asset, when you take over, you clean it up, you don't allow people littering, you don't allow people throwing cigarettes in the bushes, you don't allow 50 stray cats to be fed on, on, the, on the doorsteps. It creates buy-in from the community, or at least that's the, the goal. So yeah, I, I think that that is a very important thing that many investors, especially if they're out of state and they're not able to keep an eye on the property physically, like you said, having a partner or a, a resource to do that is critically important. 
And another thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned. So it sounds like your approach to finding the right manager is finding somebody that has a micro expertise or dominance in that neighborhood. Can you expound on that a little bit more? Right. Real estate business is a very hands-on business. So you need to have the systems, processes, people in that neighborhood to support the business. And what I've seen is, especially for the assets that we have, which are smaller to mid-sized assets, the type of property management companies who are willing to manage these assets are also on the smaller side. The property managers who manage 20,000, 30,000 units, they don't want to take on a 20 unit. They want to manage a 200 unit apartment complex. So you don't always have options. So if you're working through the options you have, and as you're going through the list of these property management companies, you want to really get a sense of what they're really good at and in which markets they primarily manage property, which neighborhoods really. And if your property is an hour away, no matter how good their intentions are, they are going to struggle because they just don't have those systems and people in place an hour away where your asset is located. So although we may have property managers who we have excellent relationships with, if they are not active in that market, we just choose not to work with them unless they are acquiring other assets in that market and actually spinning up an entire team in that neighborhood. In that case, we would consider. But otherwise, we just find another property manager in the area where our asset is. And that mainly comes through talking to other people in the real estate community. So referrals and references are key. And even after all that, you might still come across companies who are not doing a great job. And at that point, you just have to do what's best for your asset and what's best for your investors and and make a switch. So to summarize, it sounds like from a tactical standpoint for the listeners, if you want to find at least a better opportunity at a successful management company, find somebody who has a footprint in the specific type of neighborhood you're buying in. And it is okay if there's not a better option, even if you're in one major metro, to work with several management companies because you can find the best one for that particular neighborhood that has the resources, the footprint, and isn't going to be sending leasing agents and contractors and maintenance people across an hour, two hour drive that is obviously inefficient and going to probably cost you more money at the end of the day if you're paying those bills. Awesome. Let's transition a little bit to how you found these deals. Again, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today is you scaled up in a pretty impressive way. So in the last two years, how are you finding all of these deals that you ended up buying? A lot of these deals actually have been on market. Some of the smaller ones that we had initially picked up in 2020, 2021, some of them were right on LoopNet. One of them was on Redfin. So they were really accessible to everyone who was looking. But in some cases, we saw something about the asset that maybe other people might have missed or because maybe we had some level of competitive advantage being local and having in-house construction team, we were probably able to get these renovations done for cheaper, having an impact on our projected returns. Now, some of these deals were off-market. It doesn't mean they did not come from brokers. They still came from brokers. So I think just engaging with brokers and real estate agents and keeping in touch with them and building meaningful relationships with them. And if they send you something underwriting the deal and providing feedback on what numbers make sense to you. And if the deal doesn't work, why it doesn't work, that's always helpful because a lot of times the deal doesn't make sense. 
they just stop communicating. And if you have to realize that there's a person on the other side mm-hmm. and they're waiting for feedback. So you got to engage in communication, make sure you're offering feedback. So over time, even the brokers know exactly what you're looking for. So the next time a deal comes across their desk that meets your buy box or your criteria, they think of you. And they think of you not just because you've been communicative, but also because you have actually actively engaged in building a relationship with them. So that has been helpful. There's always room for improvement, but I think the broker relationships and keeping in touch with brokers, either through one-on-ones over a coffee or meeting them at real estate meetups, like the best ever meetup that we have last Tuesday every month, that's always been very helpful. So that's how majority of our deals have been sourced. Yeah, that's really good advice. And I will admit that has been one of my biggest weaknesses. I've been trying to move into the mid-sized multifamily space for many years. I finally find a couple properties and it is exceedingly difficult with the limited inventory, especially in our market. And the brokers do seem to control that market, as you mentioned. So even whether it's on or off market, quote unquote, very rarely are those deals transacted outside of the commercial brokers. And I have been definitely not following up. And to your better point, I have not been giving good feedback. So I look at a deal that comes across, I get an email, I get a text and I'm like, oh, I know in 30 seconds, this isn't a fit for me, but that's it, right? Like you said, I leave it there. And instead I could be giving them feedback on why it's not a fit for me and any feedback on the property itself to just to help strengthen those relationships. So that's great advice. I'm going to write that down for myself here. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor struggling to streamline your property management? Are you tired of juggling multiple systems to effectively manage your portfolio? Meet Rentec Direct, your ultimate solution for automating management tasks, reducing errors, and most importantly, saving you time. Rentec Direct offers an all-in-one platform for accounting, marketing, tenant screening, rent collection, and much more. And the best part? You're never alone. With U.S.-based live support and award-winning customer service, Rentec Direct is the partner you need to streamline your property management so you can focus on what's most important, growing your business and getting more deals done. If you're an investor looking to grow your portfolio, join the more than 15,000 investors and landlords who manage real estate assets totaling more than $200 billion using Rentec Direct. Just go to rentecdirect.com forward slash best ever and sign up for a free trial. Plans start at just $45 a month and you'll receive 20% off your first year just for being a best ever listener. That's R-E-N-T-E-C direct.com forward slash best ever for 20% off. So looking forward, we mentioned briefly, we know we're in a challenging market as investors looking at, especially investors looking to scale. There is 8% rates being floated around most days. What are you looking for now? What does your next six to 12 months look like? And talk a little bit about your future goals here. Great question. Again, we are still looking to acquire. We want to buy, but we want to buy at numbers that make sense in today's environment based on where the lending terms are at, where the insurance pricing is at. Taxes are going up throughout. So I think as investors, we are really getting squeezed from all different directions And on top of that, in the last three months or so, we are consistently seeing reports of negative rent growth and contraction there, vacancy rates going up. So there's a lot of changing things in the market. But at the same time, no matter what type of economy or market you're in, 
you can always buy right. So your underwriting just has to change based on that. So we are still looking to acquire. We are being a little more patient and a little more conservative now, more so than ever. I think patience is a virtue, especially now. And what I'm trying to say here is inaction is not a good thing. So you got to continue to underwrite deals. You got to continue to talk to brokers and see what works. But if none of the deals work for the next six months to a year, that's okay. I don't think we should be compromising on our criteria just to make a deal work. That would be kind of our strategy. So if the next year is a little bit slow, And the year after, finally, the seller expectations come down a little bit and we see better pricing. That's when we'll jump on deals. But if the numbers don't work, we don't move. So that's basically it. I think that's a great strategy. I completely agree with what you're saying. And let's talk a little bit about the realities of, as you mentioned, increasing costs. I know across the board, most of my properties on on insurance renewals, some of my premiums nearly doubled. Obviously, here in Cincinnati, Hamilton County, we had our tax assessment done this year. Some of my properties assessed values doubled or tripled. And now that's not necessarily a one-to-one increase in tax rate, but it obviously is across the board going to increase the, the property taxes significantly for property owners. So how are you counteracting some of these ongoing expenses? Like, What is your strategy for dealing with that? If insurance taxes go up, there's not a whole lot you can do for that. But then what we can do is if you have any CapEx planned, you have to be a little bit more judicious about how you're spending those CapEx dollars. It might actually make sense to keep those CapEx dollars in reserves and probably do a basic turn itself, because even after a $12,000 CapEx, you're probably not seeing those crazy rent upside that you were seeing a year or two ago. So I think conserving capital and focusing on operations, reducing operating expenses, try to find where the inefficiencies and bottlenecks are in your business and trying to really work on them would be really the focus for us. So my mentor says that this year, 2022 and 2023 is truly the year of operations. And I firmly believe that because if you're really focusing on operation, building your teams and making your processes more efficient, that's going to pay its dividends in the long run. And that's going to make you a little bit more competent than some of the other people who are not doing that. So to kind of compensate for these rising costs, that's been our focus, if you will. So track those KPIs a little more closely, et cetera. That sounds like a really good strategy. I guess the basis of my question is at the end of the day, whether you're active, passive, general partner, limited partner, you're chasing a return. Fundamentally, that's why we do investment real estate. And at the end of the day, the tenant's, always bear that ultimate cost because that is the business. We provide housing, the tenants pay the rent. So to me, the only real solution when counties increase significant costs on property taxes, when the insurance carriers increase significant costs on that, that's going to ultimately hit the wallet of the tenant at some point, whether it's short-term or long-term. We've seen the rate increases dramatically over the last few years during COVID. And I will say, at least personally speaking here in Cincinnati market across my portfolio, I haven't seen any rent stagnation. I have seen slower growth, but I'm tracking for about a 5% across the board increase on my portfolio this year. And that's on the ones that were at quote unquote market rates. Obviously the ones that we were still turning and renovating and, you know, some of those are doubling in rent, but again, those were under market. So 
What are your thoughts on that? And I guess to summarize my question, what are your thoughts on the affordability crisis, especially in the Midwest? And where do you see that going? What's the answer to that in the next couple of years? That's a great question. So affordability crisis is very real. We live in a capitalistic country and money is always going to chase returns. So unless the local policies are designed to help actually solve that problem, the financial policies, that problem is not going to get solved. So if investors are actually investing in affordable housing, but then they're getting penalized on taxes, they're getting penalized Mm -hmm. on rising costs, and on top of that, there is rent control, why would investment dollars go in that direction? So to solve that problem, I think the local policy and government policy has a big role to play in that direction as well. That's just my personal opinion. Of course, as local investors, we can do the best we can to help address that problem. But by the end of the day, it is a business and it is not a charity. So whether you talk about small investors or institutional money, they're all chasing returns, like you just said. So if we are trying to solve a problem, but then there's no returns, why would the dollars be allocated to solving that problem? So solving of that problem has to be also made financially lucrative. And that's when the private investors will jump and solve that problem. And I think some municipalities, some counties have done a very good job at it and some haven't. And we clearly see where affordability crisis is growing and where it's not so much of an issue. In the country, we can clearly see certain markets. The problem is way worse than others. Yeah, something I've heard, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, is as America reaches into its 200th to 300th year of existence, is our late stage capitalist economy moving more towards a European model? You know, obviously Europe's economies have been relatively stable for a thousand years, let's say, as far as countries and things like that. I don't want to get into a geography lesson, but it's obviously got a lot more timeline of established economy. So with that in mind, do you think that the answer may be more of a European style where there's much more government subsidy for housing? Is that going to be the answer to the affordability crisis, both on home ownership and on renters? Is it something like you mentioned where local governments are going to have to step in to try to reduce cost for property owners that would then hopefully trickle down to tenants? Where do you see the answers coming in the next five, 10 years on affordability standpoint? That's a great question. My personal opinion, and again, the opinions differ based on who you talk to, is not really handing out dollars to people directly because those dollars often get misused. But for example, especially in the areas where affordability crisis is real, the rents typically are lower. So let's say if your rents in workforce housing, for example, in our market of Cincinnati, is roughly about 800 to $900 for a two-bedroom apartment. Now, if there is a shortage of those apartments, and if a developer has to come and build affordable housing there, cost of construction is closer to $180,000 to $200,000 per unit. Mm. And it's not going to make any financial sense for that developer to put more affordable housing unless they can actually put that somewhere else and charge $2,000 for rent. Only then it makes financial sense. So if you're actually rewarding the developer so that the cost of construction in these areas significantly goes down. And there are programs like that already, like the LIHTC program, where you're getting a lot of tax savings, basically no taxes for 
15 to 30 years for building assets in these areas. So programs like that, I think, are better long-term than actually handing out money and subsidies to the end consumer. Because a lot of times the end consumer is not financially savvy and they don't know what to do with the checks that they're getting from the government. As we saw in COVID, a lot of people just went and bought flat screen TVs. So I think how you use that money is really the question. So I see that European markets are also, many of the economies are not actually doing well. So I don't firmly believe in that model. I do think that incentivizing the entrepreneurs and private investors to help solve that problem is probably the better route. That's an interesting take. And yeah, that makes sense to me. I would love to see something like that happen, especially here in the Midwest, where they can create a system that allows for affordable development of new housing, single and multifamily. Because like you said, obviously, one of my goals is to get into new development, and it is very difficult to make the numbers work. So it does create a bottleneck on creating the housing supply that we desperately need across the country, which would then hopefully create more affordability for the intended or end buyer. That's been a ton of great info. Let's transition into the best ever lightning round. Are you ready? Yep, sounds good. Let's do it. What is best ever book you read recently? My best ever book remains Who Not How. It's just had a tremendous impact on me just because I've struggled with delegation in the past. And that book helped me identify the core areas that I'm good at and focusing on those and using the team on the other areas. So yeah, that would be the book. Best ever way to give back? Best ever way to give back. I do think there is a lot of need in our society. So I do like to volunteer at local charities because although these social programs exist, there are people who always slip through the cracks. And there are a lot of people who have a dire need for no fault of theirs. Some people are in a bad position because of the poor decisions that they have made, but there are some people who really have the need. So I think the best thing to give back, in my opinion, is your time because that's the most valuable resource you have. So if you can give your time back to local community and especially focus on education, that's the best gift that you can give. On the deals that you've done in the last two years, give me one of your biggest mistakes you made and your lesson learned from it. Biggest mistake. I think the biggest mistake probably because we focus so much on heavy value add deals is probably overestimating on how quickly these renovations can be done. So there have been multiple instances where a large renovation project that we projected for eight months actually took 12 months. And those holding costs do add up. And also stabilization does not just include renovations, but it also includes lease up of that property and lease up of a four family versus putting people in a 20 unit going from a completely empty building. We definitely underestimated that. So that has been my biggest lesson learned. We actually ended up filling that property completely by ourselves because it was slowing down in terms of lease up. So that's been a biggest lesson learned is just make sure that you're projecting the whole time correctly for these deep value add deals. Best ever advice. Best ever advice for me. I think I come across so many people who want to get into real estate investing actively so I would say that I actually have two advices. One is take action, but that's a common advice that everybody tells you. Take action. Don't be just stuck in analysis paralysis. 
But I think especially in the time in the economy that we are in now, a lot of people think that real estate is a get-rich-quick scheme, and it is absolutely not. And especially now more than ever, you got to be extremely careful. So be careful who you listen to, which guru you choose, which books you read. Don't just look at those feel-good YouTube videos about how in one year people quit their jobs and are now driving Lamborghinis. That does not happen. That's not sustainable. So you've got to put in the work. I think that would be my advice to people, especially people starting out. And best way for the listeners to get in touch with you or learn more about you? Best way to reach out would be Facebook and LinkedIn. Our firm is called Compounding Capital Group. So compounding with an ING. So you can follow us there. And on both platforms, I'm personally also active. So if you drop me a message, I can definitely get back to you in about 48 hours. So Facebook more than any other platform, pretty active on that platform. Awesome. And we will be sure to link to those in the show notes for anyone interested in getting in touch with Jay. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, it's been two years since you've been on the show. Your journey has been amazing. I wish we had more time today to talk more details and hopefully we'll have you back soon and and make this a more regular conversation, not wait another two years to, to talk. But again, I appreciate your time. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot. If you did learn something today, please give us a five-star review on the platform of your choice. Follow us on social media. Follow us and subscribe on YouTube. And I hope you all have the best ever day. Thanks for having me, Joe. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access. And you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.